Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. On the podcast today, it's my pleasure to have Deanna Hentz as my guest. Deanna is an assistant professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and her research interests, quoting from her webpage, include tropical meteorology, tropical cyclones, orographic precipitation, remote sensing, mesoscale convective systems, radar meteorology, satellite meteorology, and hazardous weather. She's done important work in particular on the structure of hurricane rain bands, and her current interests also include orographic rain in the middle latitudes, that's rain over mountains, and other aspects of cloud and precipitation physics. Deanna studies those subjects using observations, and in particular, she makes use of data that comes from field campaigns, that is, special focused observations that she herself is involved in making, as opposed to those that come from the routine observational network. Though Deanna is still relatively early in her career, she's a veteran of many field campaigns. Field work can be difficult sometimes, but it produces a lot of good stories, and Deanna has plenty of those. She tells some of them in this conversation, like when she flew through Hurricane Katrina right before it made landfall in New Orleans. In the context of that experience in particular, we talk about the tension between the intellectual experience of extreme weather as a scientist the visceral and emotional experience of extreme weather as a human being who's acutely aware of the harm it can cause, and the cognitive dissonance of having both of those experiences at the same time. We talk about Deanna's trajectory from her origins in Texas and North Carolina and how she got into atmospheric science through, among other things, experiencing Hurricane Fran as a teenager, and then how she got drawn into our field for real through her first field campaign as an undergraduate. She had that experience with her first field campaign as part of the Significant Opportunities in Atmospheric Research and Science Program, or SOARS, an undergraduate-to-graduate bridge program at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, designed to broaden participation of historically underrepresented communities in the atmospheric and related sciences. So this brings us to the topic we discuss at length at the end of the conversation, namely diversity, equity, and inclusion in our field. We talk about how Deanna has made DEI, as we call it, a primary concern in her first years as a faculty member, why that's unusual, what the cost of doing it is, and why she has done it anyway, despite that cost. Like many others from underrepresented groups who have gone on to successful careers, Deanna credits the SORS program with having helped her get started in the field. Now, as a faculty member, she has just been awarded a prestigious career grant from the National Science Foundation. In addition to its research component on orographic precipitation, Deanna's career project has an educational component in which she will implement a lot of what SOARS does, but on a smaller scale at the University of Illinois. We talk about this exciting project and what the challenges and opportunities are and how it might be scaled up at other institutions. In this moment, where there may finally be the will in our institutions to take diversity, equity, and inclusion more seriously than we have historically, Deanna has established herself as a leader in this arena. She has some important things to say about it, and we should listen to them. So let's do that. It was a great conversation with Deanna Hentz, and here it is. What I'd like to do, if it's okay, is start with your biography. Okay. Uh, And, you know, from there we can get into your career and then the things you're doing now. Um, So where are you from? 
It's a complicated answer, but the, the simplest version is I grew up in North Texas in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, so I bounced a little bit around like to North Carolina and back, which actually I think does inform a little bit of my uh, interests in the things that I do now. Um, Cause I actually experienced living through my first hurricane while living in North Carolina. Um, but most Which of my one? childhood was, um, the, this was Hurricane Fran in 96. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I had just moved to North Carolina, not even, I don't know, nine months prior. And he was like, welcome to North Carolina. Here's a hurricane. And, and what age <laughs> are you at this one? I was 14, 14. Yeah. Okay. And I don't remember the, the, what happened with that hurricane. Was it bad where you were? Um, it was decently bad, actually. Um, the storm uh, made landfall, I think, somewhere around Wilmington, it went straight up to the middle of North Carolina, and um, I think we actually got part of the what was the falling apart eyewall of the storm. Um, so there was a, a lot of tree fall because um, it's a very heavily wooded area, and a lot of the trees are very shallowly rooted um, in that region, and so they just you know fell over very easily. But on top of that. Um, there was a lot of flooding. And so that had a very wide range of impacts from uh, some unfortunate flooding of pig waste cesspools um, that contaminated oh water supply. Um, the mall got flooded, things like that. And so, um, especially since I was a, a Girl Scout at the time, um, I engaged in a lot of public service. And so I helped with some of the cleanup and things like that. I was out of school for over a week. Wow. Um, we had, we were lucky that we only lost power for a couple of days, but many of the power outages went out three, four weeks, things like that. So that was a quite an introduction. <laughs> so you're, research. yeah, I mean, there's some yeah. subset of people in our field who, you know, it was some early formative weather events. I didn't, I didn't realize, but you're in that class. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because I, I, I grew up in the Dallas area and so, um, severe weather, um, was definitely part of my childhood from a very young age. Um, and actually, before that, um, we lived in Minnesota, so apparently a tornado went down my street when I was a baby. Um, but, of course, I don't remember that. Um, <laughs> but I do think that, um, you know, having to be very aware of, you know, what a watch was, what a warning was, um, you know, duck and cover for tornadoes. Um, I used to dream about tornadoes when I was a child, even though I never got to witness one in my memory. Um, but um, just having that awareness of like, oh, there's this weather that can kill you. Maybe you should pay attention. Yeah. Um, and also I think perhaps living in a landscape that was very flat, you know, I spent a lot of time looking up um, and looking at the sky. And because that knowledge really informs a lot of, how your day is going to go. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so I think I, then I carried that experience to North Carolina and back. And, you know, I think it's been with me pretty much ever since. What did you have an interest in science before getting hit by hurricane Fran? Yeah. Um, actually, apparently I started tracking hurricanes when I was about third grade. Okay. Um, so you were so, ready for this hurricane. <laughs> I was, yeah. I mean, I was definitely one of those that was kind of into the sciences from a very young age. Um, I have two parents that actually um, worked for IBM at the time. So I think I got introduced to technology as a, at a young age as well, had a high oh, level of comfort with it. 
but there's also things like, you know, my parents uh, subscribe to me, things like, you know, Ranger Rick, National Geographic, World, which is the kids version of the magazine, um, things like that. So I think there's just a lot of that in the ether, you know, oh, got yeah. a chemistry set, things like that. Um, but it started focusing for me around natural hazards pretty young. I was into volcanoes, earthquakes, severe weather, um, things like that. But then on the flip side, I also had a strong interest in medicine. Um, And so those dual interests of being very fascinated by the natural world, but also being very fascinated by um, impacts on humanity and um, wanting to help people. um, Those were always very parallel tracks for me from a very, very young age. You really knew where you were going early. Which is, so was it IBM that, <laughs> well, that had your folks moving back and forth like that? Was there... Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's, because my, actually my family's originally from the Midwest. Um, they're originally from Michigan. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, it was uh, because of that, that we got transferred first to Minnesota, then to Texas and then to North Carolina and back. And um, so I think the other advantage that that had though, so I started getting experience of living in different parts of the country Um, and so, so having a bit of understanding of, oh, there's these different things that happen in these different parts of the country and everyone everywhere has some kind of severe weather thing to deal with, um, was something that started again, capturing my fascination. Um, one thing that was interesting though, is I actually had fully intention of actually pursuing medicine. Um, but I think I carried that interest throughout the rest of my career, just, you know, even though I ended up focusing in atmospheric science later on. Uh, okay. So you went to high school in like both places. Or <laughs> North Carolina and Texas. Yeah. I went through three high right. schools. So that was a bit tough. <laughs> and then undergraduate was? University where? of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Michigan. So you were you still like a pre-med at that time or? I did. I started out pre-med. Uh, originally I was going to major in biochemistry. Um, frankly decided biochemistry is great and all, but I didn't like it that much. Um, it has been interesting for me that it has been in the involvement in different projects that has really kind of repeatedly changed my path over the course of the years. Um, I was actually a member of the University of Michigan solar car team. And okay. be- <laughs> because I wasn't an engineer and I was pre-medical, but I was really excited about being on the team because I had actually read about it in National Geographic World when I was a child. <laughs> Um, yeah. about the team um, during their first race in Australia back in the late 80s. Um, they're like, well, you're not an engineer. What do you want to do? And I said, uh, I like the weather. So they stuck me on the weather team. And it was actually through being taught by the team meteorologist who was a undergrad in the, the what is now the climate and space science department at the University of Michigan. Um, he started teaching me how to read satellite images. He start, started teaching me the basics of forecasting. Um, and so through all of that, and for unrelated reasons, deciding that perhaps pursuing medicine wasn't going to be the right thing for me right now, um, I needed a new major. And so that's when I decided to switch into atmospheric science. Um, and so we literally had like a satellite dish that we carried around in one of our vehicles during the race where we'd actually take it out, download, directly download satellite overpasses and then try to interpret them and things like that. Because this is also pre-smartphones, pre, you know, easy access to the internet. 
Um, so right. we had to get data on, you know, in the middle of the country with no Wi-Fi or anything like that. Right. Um, I, th- I think of you as so. so much younger than me, but maybe it's, you're still old enough to be a pre-smartphone. <laughs> I was right on the cusp. I actually got my very first cell phone for the solar car team because I needed to be able to take sponsorship calls while we're out in the field. And so I got my first cell phone for that, but it was a, you know, candy bar. didn't have you know, any of that. How old were you when you first had email? That to me is the. Uh, let's see. I guess first having it versus first really using. It. I didn't really start using it until I got to college. I don't think, but oh, okay. We, so but we got, so I guess ninety because my parents started getting internet at home. They had it at work like long before this, but they started oh, yeah. getting internet at home. I want to say in ninth grade, so that would have been ninety six. Yeah, early ninety six, somewhere in there. Uh, well, actually, what did they do at IBM? Were they actually like scientists or engineers? Or My mom was a software engineer um, yeah. and later found out that she actually helped develop some of the key databasing for the internet and stuff. So that's wow. pretty neat. Um, I didn't find yeah. that out until a few years ago. And then my father was a, um, was a software tester. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have an older sister um, and she is actually a high school math teacher. So Okay. Cause I, so I was just going to say like, you know, it sounds like your folks, you know, being science engineering people themselves, like really tried to set you up to, you know, be one of us. And it like really worked, you know, like some people rebel, <laughs> but they got both of you like. <laughs> well, we, we both we both, I think, tried to rebel a little bit. Like my my rebellion was I want to be a medical doctor. <laughs> right. But that's not going that's very a, far. Not falling that far from the tree. And then my um, my sister. um my sister, she originally intended to become an electrical engineer, um, but she ended up deciding that her real passion was in teaching. And um, so one thing that's been great is that I think because we are also instilled with the idea of service at a very young age. Um, so my sister's passion was teaching underserved kids um, in the in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And so as a, she worked um, in you know, Title I schools and things like that for a good chunk of her teaching career. Um, wow. So it's, it's, it has been this kind of very interesting mix of um, science and service or science and math in her case um, and service. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so, so you switch majors and then was it just like love at first sight or what was the experience <laughs> of, of that? Well, you know, I think the thing is, I, I, and one thing that, you know, really informs the things that I do now is that I feel like I was a little bit of a, a particularly driven poster child for how a lot of people end up in our field and that I, my only knowledge of what meteorologists did was um, work for the National Weather Service or be on TV. And I was, didn't think I had much interest in being on TV. And so I was like, okay, I'll work for the National Weather Service. And then I learned a little bit later on, like, oh, there's people who forecast for the energy companies. And so I wanted to be able to take an internship at Detroit Energy, the major utility in that area, um, in the Ann Arbor, Detroit area. The problem was that um, a lot of the internships in general, but especially that one, didn't pay. And Mm. I needed, I mean, for the summer job, I needed a paying summer job. And so um, I ended up doing a uh, research experience for undergrads um, at Michigan working with a professor. It must have been right when I was in the midst of preparing to go to Australia for the World Solar Challenge um, that I found out about the SOURCE program. 
And at NCAR. At NCAR. Yeah, because I was just looking for like, what are paying, <laughs> what are yeah, paying yeah. internships in our field? And I found out about actually the Oklahoma REU, also the source program. And, um, and that didn't actually work out the first time. Um, but one thing I have to say that um, tenacity has been one of my stronger suits in, in much of my life. And so I decided to go ahead and try again next year. But in the meantime, I did the Michigan REU and got to do research with a professor. Um, I also, just to scratch the medical itch, actually did EMT training that summer as well. Um, okay. So I could be emergency. But, but actually it turned out, funny enough, and this is a little bit of a side story, it turned out that um, by that point, I had also become a bus driver for the University of Michigan Transit System. And being a bus driver paid better than being an emergency medical technician. Okay. So I got the training, but I'm like, bus driving paid better. Um, so, okay, so now I'm like, okay, now my window's like, okay, you can work for an energy company, you can be an academic. You can be in weather service or you can be broadcast. And so this, this was my understanding of the breadth of the field. The following year, I reapplied to SOARS and I got in. And um, I was a little bit of a special case in that they said, okay, uh, well, here's your leadership training. Now go out in the field for the next six weeks. <laughs> or it wasn't uh-huh. six weeks, it might've been four. It wasn't the full, the full field campaign, but it was, um, this was the BOECO and MCB experiment that happened in 2003 the BAMX. Um, and so I, um, like I said, I was in Boulder for a week, week and a half. And then I went out to, uh, East or to the St. Louis area for the field campaign. And that was the, where has this been all my life moment? Um, okay. Wait, 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 wait. So just a second. So, so I want to get to the, where have you been all my life? I, I don't yeah. want, I want to do it justice, but before we get there, maybe we should spell out a couple of the acronyms just in case there's yeah. people who don't know. So SOARS, I don't even remember what it stands for. S-O-A-R-S. Yeah, it's the Significant Opportunities in Atmospheric Research and Sciences. And it's a program of, you know, UCAR, University Corporation Atmospheric Research, and NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Um, So this program has been in existence for nearly 25 years. Um, And with a stated goal of broadening participation in the atmospheric sciences through um, helping students pass into grad school in particular. Yeah. But I had a unique opportunity because the reason I was sent to the field campaign because my research mentor, uh, Wen Chao Li, um, was involved in that field campaign. So he was going to be sitting in east of St. Louis um, managing the flights, the research flights, um, with, the, with the radar, the research-grade radar that they were bringing into this campaign. Um, so, well, if I wanted to be mentored by him, I would go where he was. And, and so um, wait a second. So the name of the say the name of the experiment again is Bo. The Bo Echo and MCV. Mesoscale convective vortex. Uh, no. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So some number of weeks in the field uh, near St. Louis. Is that what you said? Yeah. So this was um, just east of East St. Louis, essentially. So southern Illinois. So to study the weather, maybe a little bit closer to what you experienced in Dallas than North Carolina, but. Well, I, I went on my first research flights. They had the uh, one of the NOAA Hurricane Hunters, which NOAA Hurricane Hunters do atmospheric research. Yeah. Outside of hurricane season, 
right? And so there was one of those there. And then the Navy Research Laboratory uh, P3 aircraft that's carrying the electrodoppler radar. Yeah. Um, and so when Chow was there for Eldora, but I was able to t- go on some research flights on the, on the NOAA P3. So that was very exciting. So, um, <laughs> so wait, did you actually, what did you, kind of stuff did you fly through? We were flying through MCSs. Um, did you get sick? So since I was, you know, an undergrad, I didn't have a specific role. So I was basically there just as a an observer. One thing I found out later through my subsequent experience with doing research flights is that it helps you not get sick if you have something to do, something to focus on. But since I didn't have that, the only thing I had to focus on was this metal latch that was in front of um, my chair. And it was so turbulent that the latch was, you know, uh, shaking and everything, but it was the stillest thing in my view that I could find. <laughs> so I just found if I stared at that, <laughs> and then I alternated between staring at the latch and falling asleep. Um, cause the only other thing I could do was watch the lightning out the window or that was pretty much it. And so. that got you through without barfing and stuff. Yeah. But the, several other people on that flight. Yeah, I mean, this is to me is like, see, I, I, I could never have the the eureka moment that you had because I'm really sensitive and I get really sick, really. I'm always like the sickest person in whatever situation, or at least the top, you know, top uh, quartile or something. Well, so I think like, that's probably okay because I, 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 you know, as a kid, I loved, you know, roller coasters and things like that. So I, I don't get motion sickness, I guess, very easily. So so I, I want to talk about you, but I'll just say one story. The first research yeah. flight I went on, and I've only been on a couple was the um, C-130 through really just gentle trade cumulus conditions, but, you know, a little bit of boundary layer turbulence and some banking around to go through clouds. And I was so excited about it. You know, this is when I was a young faculty member already. And I was just so sick the whole time, about an eight-hour flight. And and everybody else was fine. And I, it was probably, you know, a couple dozen, you know, I don't remember, but 10 or 20 people on the plane. And I asked somebody, like, how could it only be me? Like, how are all these people fine? You know, usually there's somebody, if I'm sick on a plane, usually I'm not the only one. Yeah. And whoever it was, I don't remember, said, well, all these people are aircraft scientists. They've been doing it a long time. So if they got sick, they would have been weeded out a long time ago. (laughs) So I realized it's a Darwinian process. And I was, was, you know, roadkill. But anyway. So yeah. you weren't, you weren't, you made it. <laughs> I made it. And then, so, well, so and this then was it. So, <laughs> so, I mean, because it's interesting because for some people, I mean, I've, I've met some young people who are interested in our field for whom, you know, the hurricane hunters is like the ideal. It's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. But for you, it sounds like you had sort of hadn't really thought about it as that particular thing until it kind of hit you. And then you were a field person, you know, after that, is that. Yeah, well, I think, and the thing is, I, th- I think back ab- about my history, and I do think there are certain things that kind of prepped me. For one, like I said, um, I was a scout, and so just kind of roughing it a lot um, kind of prepared me, because, you know, field work is a lot of usually fairly uncomfortable conditions. Um, yeah. And, um, and being in places where... Um, the amenities that you're typically used to in your day-to-day life are often not that <laughs> or, or significantly reduced. Um, then when I think the bigger thing was, was being on, was being on the solar car team actually, because even though our objective was to get this little solar powered vehicle through a very large stretch of country, you know, the American solar challenge goes for, uh, at the time, went from Chicago to Los Angeles down Route 66. 
um, the World Solar Challenge goes from uh, Darwin to Adelaide down to Stewart Highway in, in Central Australia. Those are both long distance endurance races. And so um, being part of a full support team of, you know, in both cases, 20 people where, you know, everyone's doing their jobs and having to constantly monitor the weather and things like that to make sure that the car is going to be okay and, and to actually plan strategy so when, for when we need to charge and things like that. I think a lot of that experience prepped me for a lot of how field campaigns work. And now, you know, obviously field campaigns vary in, time, in terms of what kind of platforms you're using. Are they uh, ground-based, meaning a lot of driving? Are they airborne? Are they shipborne? You know, things like that. But I think just having that um, mentality of a bunch of people working a lot of complex things for towards a joint goal, I think that that experience prepped me for that. Um, so, but I think the bigger thing that happened was that I just went into this room every day with all these scientists yeah. and I did the weather discussion, the daily weather discussion and just being like, oh, wow, there is all this stuff. And I never, just all these things. I never thought about that, you know, um, people who study weather do. And oh my gosh, there's so many things I need to learn <laughs> that yeah, I did yeah. not know. <laughs> and so that's what actually, it was doing that campaign um, that made me decide to go to grad school. So I want to get to that, um, but but maybe we can talk about this field experience thing for a minute because I think it's mm -hmm. really interesting. And you're 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 the first sort of field person I've talked to <laughs> on this podcast, and and it's I think it's a really interesting uh, thing. I mean, part of what you're describing is not just that it was field work, but that you were sort of thrust into the full on real grown up research environment. You know, no uh, training wheels or whatever. You know, <laughs> as a young age, like full, you got the full thing because that's how field campaigns are. There's no like, you know, junior varsity, or whatever. You're either there or you're not. And, and I want to like get your reflections on this. I mean, I'm someone who's not really a field person, but as I've but I've been involved on and off in field campaigns here and there. So I mean, I always feel like I learn a great deal because this is what I usually do. And so then when I'm there, it's mm -hmm. like a totally different thing. But I have enough perspective. You know, it, it, it's our field is sort of weird because it's it's a in a way it totally is a field science, right? It's an observational science. It's mm -hmm. you know our weather and climate without observations, you know, it's nothing, right? Right. But at the same time, because of the history of the field, it's actually not that much of the field that does field work. I mean, yeah. because so much of it has because of weather history of weather forecasting. There's so much in the routine observational network the satellites, the sons, and whatever, it's just always there and it's kind of automated almost. And most people don't really get involved in it such that the people who do field work are, I mean, a niche would be putting it too strongly, but it's a subset. It's not the majority, mm. right? It's a big, it's a big subset, but it's a, you know, it's a subset and it is kind of a different activity in the sense that I always feel that when you're out there, what I get out of it, if you're somebody who doesn't do it regularly and you're used to studying sort of the statistics and the patterns and how the atmosphere, and then you're thrust in a situation mm. where you're just watching the weather every day as it goes by. And, yeah. you know, you could do that from your office, but you just don't, you know, in the same way as we were, yeah, as you described, you're in some weird place, you know, there's not that much else to do. It might be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, although you and actually met, I, and I actually met on a field campaign that was in a pretty nice place. We can talk about that later. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's just a different thing. You're just watching it come and go and you get a whole different perspective. And I'm just curious your reflection on that, sort of how field work sits in the rest of the field and how you perceived it then and how you perceive it now. Well, I mean, I think 
Overall, for one thing, I mean, it was like, I don't, like, how many major field campaigns have I been on? Uh, did, did Bamex, Rainex, Dynamo, uh, NASA's HS3, which is the Hurricane Severe Storm Sentinel, um, Olympics. I mean, I've been on numerous field campaigns by this point, Rolampago, um, just more recently. And I can say it never gets old. <laughs> it really hasn't. Um, and I think one of the reasons why is that there is something very, there's something very visceral about yeah. feeling like what you're trying to study in real time. Like if it's yeah, blowing yeah. over your head, if you're ground based, if you're in the air, I don't think it's really replicable. Um, that right. experience is really replicable any other way. I mean, it's the same thing as like, you know, how, how visceral so many people describe like living through a hurricane, living through a severe weather phenomenon, or even just living through the daily weather patterns of wherever it is they live. You develop kind of this embodied sense of yeah. this weather. Um, and even to a certain degree, especially if you stay in a place long enough, the climate, the, you know, the, the average yeah, yeah. of all that experience. And yeah, and I, and I think the other thing that's really interesting about a lot of field campaigns too, is just like, let's say you're, you're experiencing the phenomenon of how it manifests in a particular place a lot of time. And so, yeah. um, so for example, um, when I was in Rainex back in 2005, um, it was a very difficult, um, but a very interesting experience, which by the way, in terms of conditions, that's one of the most comfortable, I guess you can say, um, where was that one? Camping. That was in Miami. Um, well, the operations center wasn't in Miami, but the flight operations, um, were in Tampa. So I had to, we, you know, we had to commute back and forth. Um, but having a sense of that sense of vulnerability, because it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I think, you know, when we think about it, it's like what Floridians deal with, like every year, every hurricane season, Yeah, it's hard to really get an embodied sense of what that's like until you are there. And something like Hurricane Katrina, in my case, flooded my apartment from the roof after wow. 17 inches of rain. Um, wow. Cause a lot of people forget that Hurricane Katrina hit Miami first before it you know, hit New Orleans. Um, that's a difficult experience to describe. And I don't know how much you remember from your time at Dynamo. Um, but that was an experience for me of watching the radar every single day and just being like, what the heck is on the radar? <laughs> like, cause I had not seen at that time, I'd not seen anything like it. Yeah. Um, and so these phenomena is like, you know, in aggregate, they, a lot of these phenomena happen in different places in the world, but how it manifests in that place, it's really hard to um, replicate. Yeah the understanding you get both from watching the data stream come in, but also just actually physically being there and being like, Oh yeah, that storm, it totally just ripped apart the poor guard, you know, the guard for the radar, his little shelter just got ripped to shreds by yeah. the squall line that just ripped through, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you no, know? I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I've, I've said similar things to other people, you know, it's like you, you know, you can do science without like, directly experiencing what you're studying in a visceral way, right? People study other galaxies, they study microbes, you can't live that, right? But in our field, you can. So you might as well. Yeah, I would say that if, 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 if you're of a personality where you need a lot of exactness, you need a lot of, okay, I'm going to be able to do this exact thing this way, like, then field observation work is going to be a challenge. 
there is a certain thing you have to accept that base level first thing, the weather just may not cooperate with you. Um, if you have an entire campaign built around studying some kind of convection and no convection is happening because the weather just decided to not cooperate with you, um, you have to be very flexible about taking what you got and working with whatever it is you have. And that um, can be frustrating when you have dedicated, you know, often millions of dollars to studying a thing and that thing doesn't happen. Or in the case, actually, what happened with Rolampago, where, you know, some of the things that we were there to study really did occur. Um, but the season was very quiet, relatively speaking. Um, so we got some of the data that we wanted, but we didn't get all of it because, um, a again, a synoptic pattern set up that really decreased the frequency of the kind of storms that we were trying to go after. And then the second we left, it felt like the second we left the country, suddenly the atmosphere turned on and all the convection uh, that we ever wanted happened. And we're just like, uh, of course. That was in Argentina, right? Is that? Yeah, oh, in 2018. Yeah. I, had, I had heard that something didn't go well. Actually, so in 2018... I was on an experiment um, called Piston on a, an ONR experiment on a ship oh, where mm-hmm. everything went everything went wrong almost, but in a way, it was kind of liberating because like we had this whole science plan and we couldn't do any of it because we weren't allowed to go where we were supposed to go and the thing we were supposed to study didn't happen, but a lot of other interesting stuff did happen. We got to measure it and it was kind of exciting having no plan mm-hmm. and not being confined by it. But I think if you're there to study, you know, if you're a radar person, there to look at convection on the radar, and the radar has no echo, like then you're really out of luck, aren't you? I mean, what do yeah. you do then? This similar thing happened to me um, with the NASA campaign that I was involved in, where the plane that was carrying the radar had so many problems that we were only able to fly it, I think, once. Uh, maybe once or twice, almost the entire campaign, and it was a three-year campaign. Oh my gosh. Um, and so That's what terrible. you do is like, well, you find other instrumentation to at least try to get at the problem that you were trying to address and you start making lemonade, right? Yeah. Um, Where was that, that one? Is, so this was the uh, NASA Hurricane Severe Storm Sentinel project uh, experiment. And we were flying um, drone aircraft, uh, high altitude oh. drone aircraft um, out over the central and eastern Atlantic to study how... Uh, the dry, dusty air, the Saharan air layer that's coming off of Africa interacts with tropical cyclone development, right? That was, a whole, that was a whole objective, but a few things happened. Like 2012, 2013, and 2014 were three of the slowest hurricane years that we had seen in a while. So we had very few storms to work with. Uh. Um, the plane that carried the radar um, had a lot of um, electrical problems, and so it was having difficulty... Um, passing its necessary checks and everything to fly. Um, And so that was a fairly consistent problem. And so, yeah, so long story short, I didn't get any of the data that I had written my postdoc proposal to do. I didn't get any of that data. So I had to try to build a project from other instrumentation that was flying on the plane that did fly. And again, good science. What do they say that... um, Oh, limitation can be the, I can't remember how this limitation can Necessity be Necessity is the mother of invention or something yeah, like that? Yeah, but basically um, those limitations can breed really interesting science. So you just have to have the flexibility and creativity to work with what you got and build something else out of it. It is a fairly common occurrence that, that those kind of things happen. Um, in Rolampago, 
during one of the best hailstorms, and I was there to study hail, during one of the best hailstorms that we sampled, um, one of the radar uh, for one of the uh, Doppler on wheels, some component as a capacitor or something, blew on the radar. So the radar went down right before we started sampling the storm. Mm. You know, It's just heartbreaking. Um, <laughs> and you're like, no. And it wasn't right, even because but... it got hit by hail or something. It was just random. No, I mean, it was just, just... <laughs> random, you know you're driving radars on trucks like things happen and the thing is like i and the thing is like you're telling these horror stories but i don't think like do you think that your ratio of horror stories is like any worse than anyone else like i don't think it doesn't sound anomalous we should say dynamo the one where we we met went great actually they went to study the mjo and it was just like gangbusters one after the other and yeah, it was like, and everything worked. Like right. all the instrumentation worked, and you right. know, the the the, um, P, the principal investigator, Chidong Zhang, people. He said people told him he must have sold his soul to Satan because <laughs> there's no other way it could have gone that well. Well, it was, it was similar with Raymax, where you know, who would have thought that we would have gotten Hurricane Katrina? Oh yeah, during that campaign, let alone Hurricane Rita and an, uh, another right. perfectly, you know, good storm of Hurricane Ophelia. Oh yeah, like that was a you know kind of golden campaign. Again, everything worked. Nothing right. broke in inopportune times. <laughs> you know, fixes had to be had to be yeah. made along the way. And so, it no, was I, probably yeah. it was the biggest hurricane season in basically ever. I mean, yeah. Right? So the you know the, the 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 hard stories are sometimes more fun to tell, <laughs> right? Um, but no, I think and even within Relampago, um, we got great data collection. Um, we had excellent coordination. Most things worked most of the time, but a few things went wrong. And unfortunately, one of the things that went wrong was one of the better hailstorms. We got only single Doppler coverage rather than multi Doppler coverage because one of the radars went down. In the grand scheme of horror stories, like, that's pretty mild. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. We still got data. It just wasn't the exact data that we wanted. You know? yeah. And you still figure out how to do science with it. Yeah. Okay. So so let's take a step back. So so going back to where we were before we got on this tangent. Um, <laughs> no, it's not a tangent. It's the best stuff. But but uh, but just so we get to the, you know, your, your bullet points of your life and career. So... So you go on your first field campaign as an undergrad in the mm-hmm. NCAR SOARS summer program, and you say, this is for me now. And that's and that's where you decide to go to grad school and be an mm-hmm. academic pretty much? or Yeah, well, I, that's when I decided to go to grad school. Uh, so I decided I, I at least need a master's degree because um, now with these broadened horizons, um, I was beginning to think more broadly about where I could fit. Um, and so we're starting to think more about what kind of work I wanted to do. Um, so when I went to, um, for my prospective visit with the University of Washington, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do professionally, but I really liked field research. Um, so when I went, met with Bob House, who eventually, as you know, became my PhD advisor, He's basically like, tell me about yourself. And I'm like, uh. <laughs> so I started um, telling him about my experience with SOARS, working with Wen Chow. In the midst of telling him about myself, I told him that I had experience working with data from the electrodoppler radar that, that's attached to this Navy plane. And so Bob was like, huh, well, I'm about <laughs> to take that exact plane into hurricanes. What do you think about that? what do you think about studying hurricanes? And I said, 
Um, okay. And I guess I say that because I wasn't really phenomenon specific. I think I would tell friends at the time that pretty much if it was a cloud, if it was wet, and preferably if it spinned, I was pretty okay. I wasn't like, oh, I need to study hurricanes. I need to study this, you know. I think now, of course, I've come to realize that, well, I'm really interested in phenomena in the middle scale of the atmosphere. <laughs> and thus I landed in mesoscale meteorology, but I didn't know those words at the time. Yeah. Um, not, oh, well, I had had classes in, me- in mesoscale meteorology by that point. But well, I mean, you've been on a field a campaign about it. I don't think you could have got through that without learning the uh, word. Well, I knew the word, but I don't think I had a, I didn't have a... Didn't have the context for it. Yeah. yeah I didn't have a really embodied sense of what that meant. And yeah. and so it turned out that he, that's when he was planning the Rain-X field campaign. Um, it got delayed a year. So it was actually supposed to happen in 2004. And it got delayed a year for reasons that field campaigns often do. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, I, I do my first year of grad school at University of Washington. And then so you came in oh four or... I started in 04. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So we missed each and, other by f- four years. Yeah. Just uh, <laughs> one of those arbitrary historical facts. Okay, yeah. Right, right. And then I went out in the field my first summer as a grad student, and it turned out to be, well, I got to you know fly in Hurricane Katrina, flew in Hurricane Rita, you know, got to get my apartment flooded, you know, <laughs> you know all these things. And a lot of things really came out of that um, that were really important. Um, the first thing was that again, that okay, like no, really, I really love field campaigns. That was probably the first big thing that came out of that. Yeah. Um, the second thing was what happened with the Katrina flight in particular. Because um, I flew on August twenty eighth, so the day before Katrina made landfall. Um, and there was this particular moment of having this elation and sinking feeling at the same time of, wow, this is obviously a historic storm. We're getting all this amazing data in a category five hurricane. This is amazing. This is like the thing I can hope for. My master's degree is made is going beyond this data. The data is great. That's amazing. Everything's working. This is wonderful. The sinking feeling was realizing how bad things were going to be for New Orleans because we knew we knew days in advance that New Orleans was going to get either a direct hit or a near direct hit from the storm. So you and, flew it in the Gulf mm-hmm. after after Florida. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So August twenty nine, right? Okay, I'm trying to or twenty eighth. Yeah, twenty eighth. So, so landfall was just a day or two. What? I can't remember. The, the landfall was twenty ninth, and wow. we and we couldn't sample when the storm was making landfall. Um, but we flew, I think, we flew, I believe, the 26th, the 27th, and the 28th. Um, and so so after the storm exited the Florida Peninsula, and then it rapidly intensified over um, the Gulf of Mexico, and then um, eventually made landfall in New Orleans. And so uh, we, you know, by that point, we knew fully well that the storm was heading for New Orleans. And it was during that flight, and through sampling the storm so thoroughly with um, two aircraft that we realized how strong that and well formed the storm was, and how much in trouble New Orleans was in. Um, and, and did you just so we get the whole story here because this is really an unbelievable story? You know, it it was understood for many many years how vulnerable New Orleans was and just what mm-hmm. all the risks. I mean, did you have a 
like, did you feel like you had a grasp of that? I mean, you couldn't have possibly had a sense of like just how bad it was going to be because it hadn't happened like that, you know, quite. Yeah, I don't think I could say that I I had any idea of how bad it was going to be. I just knew it was going to be bad. Um, I I did know that, you know, New Orleans is below sea level and thus is, you know, vulnerable. Um, I didn't know what came out later about how that the Army Corps of Engineers had done a stress test of the area what the year prior, year or two prior, and had identified that New Orleans would have trouble withstanding anything more than a Category 3 storm. Uh, you almost couldn't have known that. I don't think that. that no, was. I didn't. I mean, I found that out. <laughs> I found that out, funny enough, um, at the AMS meeting, the, AM, AM, the American Meteorological Society's annual meeting that happened the following year. I found out, you know, because there's, of course, a lot of focus on New Orleans, <laughs> I was sorry, on New Orleans and on Hurricane Katrina at that meeting. Um but yeah, there was no way I could have known it was going to be that bad, but I knew that was going to be bad. And yeah, yeah. Um, so I was very worried. So, so it's just like having emotions going in opposite directions at the same time. Um, yeah. So then we I landed see. and we, you know, did all the things to get the data transferred. And I think we had, we might, well, we had a down day the following day because the storm was making landfall, which meant we couldn't do any more flights. Um, and of course, once the reports started rolling in, yeah, watching so many thousands of black people, yeah, get drowned, get you know, you know, all the things that came with Katrina, um, things that happened with the Superdome, like you know, all that kind of stuff. In, in the days that followed, and especially as the death toll started mounting, um, it got to a point, like my heart was completely breaking. Um, so yeah. trying to keep her head in the game, like with a field campaign while simultaneously you're watching people like yourself die. Yeah. Um, and all of the things that came with that, um, it was an incredibly difficult place to be in um and you know knowing you know knowing people like actually a um a fellow SOARS alum from my cohort she had to evacuate yeah um New Orleans it turned out I found out later that a family friend's brother near nearly drowned in the ninth ward um, had to be rescued off his roof you know things like that um and so it was that campaign, which also made me realize something extremely important, that the best science is not of much use unless it gets to where it needs to go and comes in a form that can actually be used. And so that's when I started really thinking about the interface of um, science, communication, policy, um, emergency management, and all these different factors that we as atmospheric scientists form one key component to that but there's this whole larger framework that the information that we produce has to fit into in a way that's going to be usable by all those different stakeholders so that they can work to in this case save lives and seeing that system so fundamentally break down for people who look like me yeah it was and still is it's still haunting and every you know and, and with more recent hurricanes like hurricane maria seeing you know, some of those things play out again, it's extremely difficult. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to stay on this theme, but just 
just to before sort of broadening it um just to talk a little more about Katrina because it's such an incredible story you have I mean what I remember and I'm sure you must remember it better than I do since you were so close to it I think I was in Portland Oregon at the time at my in-laws and just kind of watching the newspaper I remember the roller coaster of like being like, oh my God, this could hit New Orleans. It could be really bad. You know, it's so vulnerable. And then there was that short period before all the levees failed. Remember that? It was like, I don't remember if it was like eight or 12 or 24 hours where it was like, oh, it wasn't that bad, mm-hmm. you know? And then all yeah. of a sudden, kaboom, it became 10 times worse than that bad, right? And that's when all yeah. the terrible stuff happened. And, and, and the other thing I want to just say for a minute is that I know exactly just before getting to the part after Katrina hits, like the part where you're on the plane, I identify with very much. I had a lesser version of it um, with Sandy. I wasn't on the plane. Mm-hmm. I was just here in the place where it was going to hit. Right. And, you know, I kind of knew days before, you know, you could see it sort of coming. And it was like for the first couple of days, it was like, wow. You know, some of those forecast models, wow, if that happened, that'd be bad. Like New York would be in big trouble. <laughs> yeah. That's never happened, but it could. And we, you know, and then it was like, okay, well, maybe it's, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you know, and, then it's, and, and the thing of it is, and you sort of described this, but it's a really strange moment for us scientists who study these things because you sort of know, I mean, sim- I mean, in the end, you know, Sandy wasn't near the tragedy that Katrina was. Not nearly as many people were killed. It wasn't the same. You know, it was a huge disaster. But, you know, um, if I had to rank them, yeah. it's clear which one is worse. But but we didn't know that, right, the day before land. I mean, you know, right. it, 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 when it's coming, you just know it's probably going to be pretty bad, that there's a big vulnerability, that you understand that better than most other people do. But at the same time, it's like, as a scientist, you're kind of not worth your salt if you're not excited by it, right? <laughs> you know? So it's like you feel yeah. guilty about that. It's like, you know, you... you you know, if you study these things and then one falls right on your head, you mm-hmm. know, you, you got to feel some jolt of adrenaline. But then it's like, oh, but I but but this could kill a lot of people. It's a conflict, right? Oh, for sure. Like, I mean, I tell people that my favorite hurricane is the one that's perfectly beautiful, perfectly well formed and stays way out to sea, just within the range of our instrumentation so we can get to it. But it stays over there, you know. Um, But no, it is. I mean, again, but it's a very similar thing of like getting that visceral embodied like interaction with this thing that is both the subject of, especially if you are really dedicated to a particular field, the subject of all your hard work and all the things that you're excited about um, intellectually, but also this kind of horrible thing that is going to hurt a lot of people, possibly yourself included in that. Um, yeah, as I said, it makes you, it's like makes my brain and my heart and everything go in like two different directions, it feels like. And it's a very, very strange experience. Um, and back yeah. to, but, but your point about the science and whether it helps or not and what it takes to make it help and how it fits in with all the other things that that need to work in the society for you know for people to survive disasters um i mean in katrina in particular you know there was multiple things that failed but the atmospheric science wasn't one of them, right? I mean, it was a good, it was a good forecast. Yeah. You know, I mean, you couldn't blame like us for that. Yeah. I know we're jumping ahead 
you know, we're jumping around to different times in your career, but, but you've obviously thought about this a lot. And I kind of, I'm really interested in your thoughts on how you navigate that now where, you know, a lot of the things that we do study, they're important because, you know, they're extreme weather events or climate change for, you know, things that, Mm -hmm. that do affect people. But in general, I mean, one can always make better forecasts, but in general, my sense is that a lot of the harm that's coming out of these things, and certainly if we think about climate change, it's, it's, it's not really a, an atmospheric science issue. Like, how do you respond to this gut-wrenching, you know, um, uh, uh, you know catharsis that you go, ha- went through? You know, how do you take yeah. it in and, and process it in your in your work or your life? Well, I think that some of the biggest things um, that I've thought a lot about, um, which has really um, steered where I thought about taking my career since, to be, a, be more involved in and thinking about how we can best translate the information that we are excited about and things in all the science that we generate. But if we want to translate it to something useful, to people besides ourselves, <laughs> then yeah. we have to figure out how to translate that information into things that they can use and understand. Um, and so, you know, I know there's, uh, especially with climate work, there's been a lot of thinking about, okay, well, how do we downscale these, you know, coarser yeah. models into finer resolutions so we can actually start thinking about um, impacts mitigation, um, things that are gonna be happening on much, much smaller scales. Um, but a lot of that also comes down to, I think we just need to talk to people more and we just need to ask more questions of people who are not each other. Um, and so, you know, for example, as atmospheric scientists, we, you know, what are some of the key things that we think about? Okay, temperature, pressure, humidity, wind speed, you know, so those, a lot of those are the most, the most basic measurements. Um, that an atmospheric scientist care about to study phenomenon that we're looking at. Is that information when we're developing a report for um, a stakeholder, are those the actual variables that they need to know? Or, you know, are are there other things that they may be more interested in um, that we're not thinking about that, you know, maybe we need to change our analysis or maybe we need to partner up with, say, an oceanographer or another type of geoscientist or a, a life scientist or something like that to combine that information into something that um, that takes the different strengths of all those fields and puts, puts it back into a package. And then talking to social scientists and it's like, okay, then what kind of presentation, what kind of communication, what kind of... Um, interactions do we need to be having so that the people on the other side can receive this information in a way that's going to be useful to them so that they can make better decisions. We can't work in a vacuum anymore of just being atmospheric scientists if we truly want to make some of these things better. We need to work with a lot of other people to bring a lot of different kinds of information together to really help these processes. That's how I think about it now. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I want to hear about how you're thinking about it now affects what you're doing now. But before we get there, let's make sure we get through the, the, the essential <laughs> history. So, so you go to Washington, thesis advisor Bob Powell's. You, you did your PhD also on Rain Next, or did it end up being Dynamo Two? I can't remember. You, you, 
my master's work, I really focused on case study analysis of Katrina and Rita um, using um, the airborne Doppler radars. For my PhD, I did want to take a step back. It's like, okay, I got all this insight from these case studies, um, observational case studies. Now I really want to get a bigger picture and get more statistical. And so that's when I moved to working with the um, Tropical Rainfall Measurement Mission satellite, the TRIM uh, precipitation radar. Right, right. And I used the data set over many, many years of different um, overpasses of um, tropical cyclones, both in the Atlantic base and also in the West Pacific, to get a big enough data set to see, like, okay, well, how do these different features of these hurricanes manifest um, under different conditions? You know, because there's a lot, there's a lot of things out there. Like, okay, well, when hurricanes interact with this, then this happens. You know, there's a lot of these things that were born from a lot of these case study analysis, which is great. But then I was just like, okay, well, is this statistically true, or is this, you know, um, right. kind of a more individual thing? And so that's where my PhD focus. So I just wanted to take that bigger picture step back after doing such focused casework. And so when you were on Dynamo, that was 2011. So that, mm-hmm. that must have been close to when you finished, right? When I left for Dynamo, I had just offended. Um, like, oh, okay. Like two months prior to when okay. I departed. Yeah. Okay. I sort of thought of you as still affiliated with Bob, but I... Yeah. I mean, I was, post- I was postdocing for him by that oh, point. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Okay. But didn't um, you go to NASA then? I postdocked with Bob for about, I guess you can say, six, eight months. And then I went on to do my postdoc at NASA Goddard. And that's when the when the um, UAVs failed in mm-hmm. that experiment. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't all, but yeah, no, that was that's when, that was when I did that um, that campaign. Um, right. That was the making lemonade, the real lemonade making. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of years in NASA, and that's when you went to Illinois. When did you get there? I can't remember. So I got here in twenty fourteen. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what you've been doing during this time. I know that science-wise, there's pretty good continuity from what you're doing before, because I've heard you talk about it. Um, (laughs) Observations of hurricanes and, you know, uh, and their um, precipitation characteristics and eye walls and rain bands. And tell me about your time in Illinois. (laughs) Yeah, so so it is just kind of funny that a lot of my research program now directly stems from um, people asking me to be a part of field campaigns. Um, and so I circled back and um, started looking at some of these, the qualities of precipitation in the MJO. Um, so still hanging out in the central Indian Ocean. And more recently, we've actually been transitioning to actually looking at how tropical cyclones interact with the MJO. And so, oh, okay. um, so kind of bringing, you know, this, inevitably tropical cyclones had to work their way in there somewhere, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, that's been kind of a more recent uh, research focus that my um, one of my PhD students has taken on. Still been working, yeah, so we've been working with the um, results from the uh, or the data from the NASA field campaign that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the things, so, so one of the things that really came out of my PhD was I really got to start thinking about some of these rules of thumb that we say about the interactions of 
convective phenomena with their larger scale environment. And so, like I said, if sheer high hurricanes don't do well or, you know, right. uh, the water's warm, it does this. And if it's cold, it does that. You know, I just kind of wanted to get a better idea of like, is, are these things actually true, really true? Or are they um, convenient rules of thumb that work some of the time? Or, you know, what's going on there? Um, right. And so that, I think that interest really kind of formed where a lot of my follow-on research went on because I started getting really interested in how mesoscale um, precipitation systems like um, from hurricanes down to um, MCSs, down to mesoscale convective systems, down to um, now I'm working with hailstorms and um, like how does their environment really impact their evolution and their behavior in a precipitation production. And so mm. I ended up um, being involved in the Olympics field campaign, which was a ground validation, a NASA that ground validation experiment of the new follow-on to TRIM satellite, the G, you know, Global Precipitation Mission Satellite. Um, and their interest was to validate how well the um, different instruments, but especially the radar, performed in mountainous terrain. So they were um, this campaign was on the Washington state coast and Olympic peninsula. Um, and so that was another one of those things where I went on the field, I had to you know, babysit a radar for a couple of weeks and I'm like, I, I want to know more about what I am seeing. And so um, now I'm looking at how um, fronts from middle latitude cyclones interact with terrain and how they're modified upstream um, before they even reach the terrain itself. And that actually, that research is now the subject of the NSF Career Award that I just received. Um, oh, great. I didn't realize that. So, yeah. okay, so wait a second. So, so I mean, I knew you got the NSF Career Grant, and congratulations, <laughs> and I want to talk about it. But I, I hadn't, um, like, read the abstract of it. I guess you can go online and see what people have proposed. But I, so, I, so I didn't get the full um, picture of it. Um, and I know that part of it is to replicate some of the SOARS program, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So I want, I want to hear about that too, for sure. But this sounds like one of those, you know, one of those sort of the ideal thing that happens in the field, right? Something you weren't expecting and you get interested in it and chase that down. And that's a great um, way to get ideas. So it's, tell me again, it's it's the mid-latitude fronts yeah, interacting so with severe convection. So, you know, we know for a long time that um, precipitation, its intensity, um, and behavior and everything is modified by systems going over terrain, right? And that's something we've known for a long time. And we're still trying to figure that out. I mean, that's not, not, not a complete, um, you know, we figured it all out kind of area. But one thing I realized is that it was noted, um, especially in some studies looking at the West Coast, that every once in a while under certain kinds of conditions, the precipitation can start to behave as though it's going over a mountain, even though there's no actual terrain there. Um, mm. and, and basically thinking about that, how um, changes in the stability of the atmosphere, the, um, the wind was doing the kind of precipitation that you're dealing with can all can come together in, in particular ways that the enhancement that results of from precipitation moving over mountains can actually start to propagate upstream of the terrain itself. Right. Um, and so I wanted to figure out how, I want to learn more about how that works, but especially in situations where the properties of the flow 
is rapidly changing, which is what happens in the latitude fronts, um, right. latitude cyclone fronts. And so when you have these intense gradients of, um, of stability, you know, temperature, humidity, all that kind of stuff, um, how can where the precipitation is enhanced move towards and away from terrain under those kind of conditions um, right. and get a better sense of how it's distributed around the mountain range. Um, is, it a, is it a cold air damming effect or a, or, or a, that's, some other kind of blocking that? There's a lot of blockage and it really, and that's the other thing that's really curious about it is that when you're dealing with a long mountain range, like say for example, the Sierra Nevadas or the Cascade mountain range, etc., then you can get these very interesting blocking situations that can change this, right? Yeah. The difficulty comes in when you're dealing with a mountain range like the Olympic Mountains, where they are pretty much a circle. Right. And so rather than flow um, being blocked by the terrain and diverted at either, you know, up or down barrier, instead the flow will divert around it and then and under certain conditions and then, you know, reconverge on the other side of the mountain. So kind of like, you know, mm. if you direct a hose or whatever at a rock in a stream and you watch the water go around and yeah. on the other side. Right. So there's phenomena associated with that, like the Puget Sound Convergence Zone. You know, the times that we would actually get excited, there was lightning in Seattle. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, things like that. Um, but that really changes then, like, well, if you're, you're not getting complete blocking, but you're getting this flow diversion instead, how does that fact change what we understand about how um, flow blockage influences this um, upstream propagation? And are you using mostly the field observations from, was it Olympics? Is that what it's called? Or, or do you yeah. have a, Yeah. Yeah. So we, we're largely using the observations from the Olympics field campaign, which was another one of those game, game buster type of field campaigns where I feel like sometimes the phenomena are trying to kill you a little bit. Um, <laughs> How so? What happened? That was a year that there was several atmospheric river events. Um, one of the radars nearly got flooded out because it was parked next to this lake and it got so much rain that the lake level went up about four or five feet. And uh, Where is this? In the Olympics somewhere? This is, this is in the um, Quinault Valley, an Olympic Peninsula, yeah. And okay. um, so the, the Dow had to be on stilts for a couple months because the, because of the flooding that kept happening Um so it was just another one of those. Okay, this is this is great. It's a little too good sometimes, but it's great. <laughs> um, right. You know. Yeah. Um, so we also you talked about with Shadong's luck with Dynamo. We also kind of joke about Bob House's <laughs> luck with some of these campaigns too, because Rainex was very successful, Olympics was very successful. So, um, in terms of just weather cooperation, I mean. Um, yeah. So. Oh, I think I got. Let's see. What else am I doing? I forgot a couple things. Um, well, I mean, another thing that came up was the, the work that I'm doing with the Rolampago field campaign. So don't ask me to rattle off that acronym. That one's a, a long one. Um, but we are essentially there to study um, severe convection in central Argentina. And so, um, and trying to understand why um, a lot of the satellite proxies um, see the storms in central Argentina, some of the most intense in the world. Um, so we're basically trying to figure out, okay, what's the secret sauce that's coming together to make this region so prolific. And in particular, it's an extremely prolific hail producer. 
Um, and as it turns out, they don't get as many things like tornado. They don't get as many tornadoes and things like our tornado alley does, but they get a lot of hail. And so um, trying to get a better idea of how the mountains combined with the flow off of the Amazon basin combine to create this very intense convection. And so I was working on the hail component in particular and in part involved driving a little tiny truck with a, a mobile sounding unit so that we could watch launch weather balloons um, for a couple months. So, Do any of these things re-engage your, your thinking on... Um, you know, how it impacts people and how the science fits in with the rest of it? Has that come up in any concrete way or caused you to, you know, yeah, engage so, in any of the ways you described one month yeah, earlier? So it's actually kind of funny because even though when I was on the BAMX campaign, back when I was a source student, um, I was there because, like I said, my research mentor was there um, and everything else. Um, but I was there to learn how to work with the radar data. The data I was actually working with was actually from the Vortex field campaign, the first one, or no, the second one. The data that I was working with was actually from uh, an intense hailstorm. And so I was looking at how, um, how the storm was such a pretty prolific hail producer. Um, and so it was just interesting for me, like I said, you know, you know how science sometimes loops back on itself. It can be years down the line. And when you're like, oh, yeah, the thing that I saw, that'd be really cool to look at again. And so um, when I got the opportunity to be part of Relapago, that was one of the things I really was interested in. Because among other things, hail is such a huge source of property damage, and especially um, for agriculture. So one thing that I um, started getting more and more interested in um, with issues around um, public health, food security, things like that. And hail is really, really good at annihilating crops, um, which can, yeah. especially in, in places in the world where people live, live a little um, more precariously when it comes to food security, that can be a major problem. And it is a problem for um, some parts of the world. So one thing I've been thinking about um, with the research I've been doing with Rolampago is thinking about a couple of things. One, um, how the understanding of, of how hailstorms development, uh, develop in this region can influence and help farmers better understand their risk. Um, and not just farmers, but, you know, pub, you know, public, um, in general as well. Mm. But on top of that, if we have a better understanding of the conditions and circumstances under which hail and severe hail, which uh, actually I'll step away from the severe hail definition. I'll just say hazardous hail, mm. but I'm kind of trying to make that def that distinction because we have a particular definition of what defines severe hail. It's anything over an inch mm. in diameter, yeah. uh, 2.54 centimeters. Right. But because in this region, you can actually get situations where you, the hail may itself may only be the size of a pea or maybe the size of a dime. But there's so much of it that you can get five foot drifts of small hailstones. So it looks like it's just snowed. Yeah. When you have situations like that, that's a, I mean, besides certain crops are going to be still sensitive to that, especially fruit crops like grapes. So um, if you enjoy a good Malbec, for example, then you know that Argentina is one of the biggest producers of Malbec 
wine in the world. Yeah. Well, they put hail nets over all, a lot of their fruit because it's so vulnerable and hail happens so much there and tender fruit crops like grapes doesn't, you know, it doesn't need to get hit by a huge hailstone to damage the fruit and, right, and right. thus reduce its value. Right. So those are the kind of things that I'm thinking about. But on top of that, if we understand the conditions better of, of what the range of hail events that you get in central Argentina, then you can also start thinking about, well, then how can we improve um, warning processes and um, in getting information out to people again to help make it useful for decision making. Um, so those are the kind of things I'm working on, you know, looking at the watch warning, it's the alerta proviso, et cetera, system in Argentina. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the analog to what we have, the you know, National Weather Service watch warning system we have here. Um, and how we can also use other tools to get um, information on what's going on. Because the other thing is too, their observation network isn't as extensive as ours. And so how can you use things like social media, things like that, to both um, gather information about what's happening and then also disseminate information as well? So those are some of the things I'm working on with just that one campaign. Um, are you studying but, social media data or you have a collaborator or are you? Mostly working with Twitter um, to look at that. Um, and we're basically trying, we're basically, one of the things we're looking at is like, well, how useful is it to use this as um, ground validation? And, oh, wow. um, but I mean, you're so, doing it yourself or do you have, yeah, a, we're doing it ourselves. you don't have a social scientist or something that's right now. We're just tra- focusing on how much information can we gather from the tweets themselves, um, which is a bit more of a pure, like, okay, does, is there enough information in this tweet to be useful to, as a, as an observation? Yeah. Um, I do hope to expand, expand that into then eventually turning around and working with a, um, social scientists to look at how do people interact with that information. So like, for example, if the uh, Argentinian National Weather Service puts out a tweet about an alert, how are people interacting with that information? What are they getting from it? Are they just posting memes or, you know, <laughs> you know whatever, you yeah. know, getting more information to how to, as to how people are actually processing that. So that's something I'm very interested in. That's probably. So you do, do like, yeah. do you do stakeholder engagement of some kind? Do you talk to the weather service or the, farmers or the or whoever or so we right now we've been mostly working with um and talking with the um folks that we know through Olympico um at the Argentinian National Weather Service and because one thing we learned is just that yeah they due to the how their forecasting system works in that country they have twitter up um while they're while they are um doing forecasts and and putting out alerts and things so that they can see um reports rolling in about what's going on. Um, because again, they don't have as many observers on the ground, like trained observers on the ground to do this kind of stuff. And so, um, so we wanted to get a handle of like, okay, you know, that's really great, but then how, um, how, how can we use this to gather scientific information? So that, and we're also, um, there has been work with a, a collaborator or with a um, researcher down at um, the University of Cordoba and she's been looking at, you know, what developing one of these um, crowdsourced, um, like an app where you, people could submit, and this is a uh, submit data. Um, and this was a partnership with their um, science directorate, you know, with the with their government. Um, 
one limitation about programs like that, however, is like, well, how many people know about it and then use it and actually engage with it versus something like Twitter where, you know, some everybody's on Twitter. And so there might be um, additional information you can gather from there. So that's that was kind of the motivation about around trying to do this. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I don't want to keep you all all evening, but I I really want to hear more about the um, component of your um, new NSF career project that's about, if I understood correctly, sort of replicating the NCAR SOARS program at Illinois. And I just want to say that when I, I saw your award announced somewhere, I don't remember if it was Twitter or somewhere else, and that was the thing that was focused on. And it was um, really something because I think I knew that somehow that you had come through that program, or maybe the press release said it. Um, and uh, and it came out at somewhere near the, the, the peak this summer of like Black Lives Matter being in the media, mm-hmm. which obviously you didn't plan. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, the field has, I mean, just as context, anybody who's been paying attention knows that the field has a diversity, equity, inclusion problem, has a whiteness problem for much longer than there's been, you know, Black Lives Matter per se. The announcement at least is very well-timed in that sense. I kind of had the sense that your investment in this went goes beyond the typical broader impacts. That, you know, anybody to get one of these awards, you have to describe, I don't know, not everybody listening may know how the National Science Foundation works, but you have to have an intellectual merit part where, you know, you're doing your science and that's about the stuff you described, I guess, with the um, the fronts interacting with orography and 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 precipitation. You also have to have a broader impacts component where you do something that's interfacing with the broader society in some way. And there's many different ways that could happen. So everybody has to do something to get one of these grants, which are highly prestigious and highly valued. And it's great, you know, it's a great achievement to have gotten it. But yours somehow looked a little more substantive, like a little more real mm-hmm. and a little bit less sort of just thrown in there to get the, the award than some of them. So I just want to hear how that came about, what it is, you know, how you see it yeah. in the context of your own experiences and what you see going around you in the field and so on. So one thing about the NSF Career Award is that it is different than a typical NSF grant in that, like you said, you know, a regular grant, you have intellectual merit, you have your broader impacts. Um, but with the NSF Career Award, it's different in that about a third of the proposal is dedicated to education. And so the, the nice thing about it is a longer grant things like that. Five years, um, right? Yeah, it's a five-year grant versus the t- usually standard ones are more three years. Um, and so that creates a really big difference. Um, how this came to be was essentially, like, like I said, the source program at NCAR has been around for about almost 25 years. And now there's alumni that are scattered throughout the field and outside of the field as well. Um who are, you know, in professions, some, some are academics, some are in a lot of, you know, there's several in government, um, private sector, et cetera. And one thing that we started really thinking about was, well, this, this program has done a lot to um, engage underrepresented students um, and also, you know, more broadly, just students who are interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion in general. Yeah. Um, because that's one thing, that's one common misunderstanding about the source program is that it only accepts underrepresented minorities. That's not actually the case. You do have to have a, um, both an appreciation and a desire 
to want to improve the field in this way through um, broadening participation. Um, so one conversation that started happening um, was between, um, between SOARS and many of the stakeholders that happily received SOARS for, you know, protégés after they yeah. go through the program and the alumni was, well, how can we start to broaden the reach of a lot of the um, perspective and goals that SOARS is trying to, you know, create? Because, you know, the program itself, um, you know, touches the lives of, say, 10 to 30 however many students a year, which is wonderful. And it is a multi-year program, so you can go in and, you know, repeat experience to help build your confidence and all these things. That's great. Um, but how do we broaden that and make it a more widespread thing? So a couple of us um, who were faculty members by that point were thinking like, well, it would be interesting to try to translate the SOARS model. There's no way to replicate it purely because as you know, an academic department is not a national lab. There's no way to yeah. make a direct translation. So, but what, but what can we do and how can we marshal the resources that an academic institution does have um, and that are very different than what a national lab has um, to create a, an experience with a similar goal, but the execution may be different. Mm -hmm. um, and so we came up with the idea of creating these satellite programs to the main source program, um, basically as an experiment to see um, how we may be able to do that. And so I started thinking about it. It's like, well, through my experience with SOARS, the wonderful thing about it was that basically it was a little bit like atmospheric science as a field um, survival boot camp. Mm -hmm. In that, how do you um, marshal the skills through your education, through this research experience? but also how you develop the communication skills, the professional development, and also, frankly, a lot of emotional coping mechanisms mm. to deal with the fact that you're isolated. Mm. Um, there's a lot of people um, who do not understand where you're coming from. Um, mm. And oftentimes, especially to pursue a graduate degree, you're moving to places all over the country that are often very um, disconnected from the community that you came from. Um, mm. How to cope with that? How do you develop community around yourself? How do you develop connection? You know, Source provides you with mentors, but how do you develop those kind of mentoring um, relationships wherever you go. You know, these are the kinds of things that it's just like, well, to deal with the fact that, yes, you're going to be one of the very few or the only, um, probably, well, not hopefully, but there's a good chance that it will be for the rest of your career. So how do you deal with that? Um, so I started thinking about that because the experience was, okay, I, I get all this experience that's very positive, and then I go back mm -hmm. to my home institution and at the University of Michigan and then have to deploy all those strategies to both finish my degree than, you know, when I went off to University of Washington. And I was, I mean, I would like to say I was pretty successful at doing so, but that doesn't fix necessarily the problem hmm. that I'm having to cope with a difficult environment, um, which takes additional emotional labor, which takes um, yeah. a lot of processing that's not going to my science or going to school. And instead yeah. of just having to, 
to get through life um, in this in this environment. So what I really started thinking about is how to use a program like this as a vehicle for broader change. How do you then make the department as a whole a better place for everyone? Yeah. But that would also, in addition, um, make it more supportive and more inclusive and welcoming for um, students that come from um, backgrounds that are not represented well in our field. Um, So that's when I started thinking about, okay, well, A, we have a lot of resources on campus. We have a lot of resources in our department. How do I start to marshal those pieces and start working on adapting them to be creating this support structure? And one of the first groups of students that I started really thinking about the most, um, because they're a group of students that face a lot of challenge coming into atmospheric science programs, is transfer students. So students that are coming Mm -hmm. from especially two-year colleges. And one reason why I really started thinking about that was because, well, um, A, that's where a lot of our students um, of underrepresented backgrounds come from. Yeah. And... For two, I mean, that transition, there's, there is um, research in geoscience ed about how that transition from a two-year environment into a four, four-year university environment is very, very jarring and can really set a student behind. Um, and for three, I mean, we are very lucky at the University of Illinois that we have a tight-knit, close um, faculty, student, et cetera, relationship. But how, we, how do we get someone up to speed quickly enough so that they have time to take advantage of a lot before they are eventually out. Cause they're only with us for maybe two years, maybe three. Yeah. So I was thinking about all that. And so things started coming together. That's like, okay, well start um, getting students also involved in undergraduate research among other things really helps a student develop a, a relationship with professors so that then later when they're looking for letters of recommendation or other things, they have a relationship that this, that's outside of the classroom that a professor can pull from. Yeah. So there's all these advantages to doing these kinds of things. And we do a lot of these things in a lot of academic um, departments, but doing it in a more focused and intentful and directed way um, for a student that's coming fresh into this, you know, and getting the fire hose of, oh my gosh, there's this, you know, whole new environment that is completely different than anything I experienced at my two-year college. Yeah. Um, how do you how you smooth that transition so that the students can be um, more incorporated into the, depart- the department more quickly? That was the essential goal and the essential, you know, basically the essential thing that I um, uh, have now been funded by NSF to work on. Um, yeah. So it's, a, it's using a lot of the support structures that SOARS has honed. Yeah. And what makes it truly successful is that they are making sure to support the student in a holistic way. Mm-hmm. And so recognizing that this person is a human being as well as a scientist. So in a university, um, it's not quite the same situation in the sense that you have a relatively smaller um, uh, faculty. And mm-hmm. in the summer, they're kind of, you know, sort of done teaching. And so, I mean, do you have, a, is there a challenge of getting sort of the same numbers, just the same raw numbers, both of students and of mentors and of, you know, putting together the same kind of thing? Is it? The advantage that we have in an academic environment is that we have graduate students. 
Yeah, yeah. And why that's an advantage is a few different things. For one, those students can then see what graduate student life is like and be able to work and interface and talk and develop relationships with graduate students. They can see what that experience is like. And, um, and for two, graduate students make pretty darn good peer mentors because they are at the kind of the next phase of where a student may go and they're closer in age, Yeah, things like that. And so, and again, we have those students, we have students at multiple levels, everything from, underclassmen, upperclassmen, graduate students. So there's more of a smooth gradation in ages and experiences that a national lab doesn't have. Yeah. So yeah. that's a, I think that is actually a major benefit of doing yeah. this in an academic environment. Wow. Well, it sounds amazing. And how many students do you think you'll have in the, in the or what's the goal? I mean, asymptotically. So I'm, I'm also a co-PI on the main source grant and that started a few years ago and so that started with a little bit of seed money to try to experiment with how we're going to do this i see um so that was basically enabled me to take on one student i see um now with the more full funding from the career grant that will enable me to like said replicate some of the things that source can do like sending students to um, paying for them to go to conferences um things like that um and will enable me to take more on. So, I mean, the reality is I am still a pre-tenure faculty yeah. member with, that has a wide, yeah. I mean, a wide range of responsibilities. And yeah. so I'm, I'm, eventually I'm hoping to ramp up to taking on three. Um, okay. Right now it's probably going to be about one at a time and, it's, and it should ramp up over time. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I hate to say it, but given some of the numbers that we have, that's not even... Three is not nothing. It's, it's not nothing, but it's also kind of a, if I had three different students that were kind of in this um, need case um, at a time, that's a lot compared to. Yeah, you no, know. that's what so I'm saying. Yeah. Through all these different facets and working with the faculty as well, that we can really intentfully think about a cultural shift within a department of, you know, we pride ourselves in being student focused and being, um, being a family. And so it's like, well, probably every family, if you think about it, every family probably has some things they can tweak and improve to truly make sure that all the, all the members are truly included and no one's falling through the cracks. Yeah. So that's how I kind of see that. And I mean, the thing of doing it in university too, is that I mean, although some things, you know, it may be harder to have the same numbers and all that, but on the other hand, if you can do it and everybody can see that it works, then one can imagine that even without a career grant, there's a lot of universities in the country that could do some, some of it or all of, you know, all of it, if they really want to, you can set an example in a way that maybe NCAR can't quite because not, no university can really be NCAR, but. Yeah. And that's what I'm hoping, because the thing is, is that. I think most universities by this point are putting resources towards different, you know, diversity, equity, inclusions initiatives. There's interest there. There's often resources there. There's often existing programs. Um, And so a lot of it is like, okay, how do you marshal all of that energy that's already being expended in a way that's um, going to be directed through um, helping a student be the most successful folks really need to seriously think about a lot of the different aspects 
of how we pursue science, how we think about science, how, how we think about who belongs in science. Yeah. Um, and all the things that are around that, we need to think about all of that if we truly want things to change. And we can do some of, a lot of work towards that in our academic institutions, but I think we need to think more broadly too. And so um, this is you know one effort towards trying to make that happen. Yeah, so I, I've kept you a long time, but some of the things you just said kind of um, uh, brought me to one more question I want to ask you if you're willing. Um, uh, since you brought up um, the issue of whether this is valued and you talked about being a junior faculty member um, and all the responsibilities. And I, I want to preface the question by saying that you came here and gave a talk, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I can't remember mm -hmm. exactly, but within the last few years. And you gave a science, you know, very nice science talk for the first, you know, most of the minutes. But then at some point, well before the end, you you drew that to a close and you started on a um, sort of almost a separate talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the specific things you said, but I do remember thinking, wow, Deanna's really all in on this. And this is kind of a gutsy <laughs> move for a young, I mean, not that we're <laughs> going to judge you. I mean, we're Columbia University, it doesn't yeah. matter, but like, you know, for a young faculty member, you know, I think now, actually, I've been in conversations where we talk about how everybody should do that. But I had never seen anybody do that before, certainly not um, somebody at an early career stage. And this was before your, you know, this this career project got going and all that. Um, but obviously, it wasn't, you know, that wasn't a, a one off that reflected a lot of, you know, a lot of thinking and effort on your part. That's only, if anything, sounds like it's increased. And the conventional wisdom would be, and I'm sure you are well aware of this, is that as an assistant professor, this is not like the best way to be spending your time just in your own self-interest because everybody wants you to publish papers and get lots of grants. Okay, this is a very great, prestigious, excellent one. So that, you know, check that box is, you know, <laughs> awesome. But I'm sure you heard this and I'm, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of stuff that the institution needs to do it doesn't sound like anybody made you do it, but I'm sure everybody's happy you're doing it. But at the same time, the system, as you pretty much said, really isn't set up to value it um, and historically hasn't valued it. So I'm just curious how you're negotiating that. Do you feel supported? Do you feel that the institution specifically that you're in and the field as a whole has your back at this? I mean, are you, or are you way out there on a limb and how is it? It's, it's complicated. Um, you know, I, I won't lie. Um, one thing in general, I think that has been a difficult thing uh, following this path has been two pieces of advice that I received ever since, you know, back of the, ever since I, you know, got passionate about a lot of this stuff back with Katrina and then, you know, went on to form a women's group well, to co-found a women's group in the department, you know, at the University of Washington, Department of Atmospheric Sciences. Um, I was cautioned against getting too deep into this kind of work um, for a couple of reasons. One, that um, people could very much try to exploit me. And for two, that people may not be willing to respect me as a, you know, not fully fledged developed scientist yet. Um, yeah. yeah. 
and for three that yeah like like i said all this work takes time and the more time you spend on it the less time you're spending on um doing the things by which scientists are most valued by yeah so for me, I have a few responses for that. For one, it's like, well, again, I think there needs to be a serious need to rethink overall about how do you value a scientist? You know, if you disincentivize um, thinking about DEI and acting on it, do you disincentivize being a public intellectual through, you know, doing a lot of public engagement, getting involved in policy, all of that? If all of that is treated as, well, that's nice, but we don't really care. <laughs> yeah. Like, it really does mean that either you don't sleep at night or you have no incentive to do it because doing it would shoot you in the foot professionally. Right. Uh, so I think overall that that valuation system definitely needs a rethink. And especially when you think about how that impacts um, traditionally underrepresented groups like women, like minorities, yeah. um, ethnic minorities and racial minorities, et cetera, where you have, I'm not saying everyone's interested in doing that kind of work, but a lot of people are because mm -hmm. they really are interested in doing science that will benefit their community in direct ways. Mm. And so how are you almost by just that valuation system alone, shoving out a ton of people out of the field because they want to spend at least part of their time working in these areas so that's a diversity issue right yeah. there on its face. Right. Um, so really the answer became at some point I had to make a decision of what my values were. Yeah. And one thing that <laughs> was facing your mortality with uh, COVID, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, you know, being, you know, in your apartment for, or house or however long, it really, I think for me at least, had a way of refocusing me on those values. And one thing I had to decide for myself was that this work, making science a better place to be yeah. and making science a place where the best science can come out of it by having a wide range of people who are willing and able to, to pursue it that's a huge passion of mine and something that, you know, frankly, I don't want people to face what I had to face coming up um, or all of my predecessors had to face coming up. And it's not only is it not ethical and all these other things, but right. on top of that, it, we're, we're limiting the science that we can get based yeah. on that. Um, yeah. And so I, I had to decide at some point that it mattered enough to me that I'm going to keep doing it. And if it means that after, you know, some chunk of time, I'm no longer in academia because that work isn't valued, then I just had to accept that as a possible consequence. Now, I don't think it should all fall on people like me. I think the one of the things that in most recent months, the sea change that's very swiftly happened is people realizing that all this work cannot keep falling on the people who are most impacted by it. Yeah. And to be truly effective, it yeah. really needs to be a broader effort. Yeah. And so um, I'm hoping that that change will stick, that that is a motivation that will stay with people 
because I think everyone truly does want science to be the equitable, fair, everything else place that we idealize it to be. But I think we probably as a field need to do more work to actually make it that way. (laughs) You know, the proof, the proof's going to be in the pudding, right? Like, I don't want to call victory, (laughs) you know, at all right now, because even though the willingness has changed very suddenly, this is going to be a long drawn out effort um, to actually, to actually make change happen. And so I won't, I won't really uh, (laughs) sit and rest about that until until some of that change really starts to happen. Well, Um, I guess there's two. I mean, one is the change in the field as a whole. That's a huge project you know, bigger than any individual, you know, even mm-hmm. you, but, but the other thing is just, you know, the, the, the change in the field of getting this work that you're doing, um, uh, you know, recognized for what it is so that it isn't, you know, it doesn't need to always be considered something that you shouldn't be doing as a, as a, as a young scientist. Yeah. You know, that's, a, think- that's a smaller scale, you know, Thing. And I think that's the appetite, I think, for that is, is changing. It's been, and I think, you know, between the recognition of, oh, climate science is something that maybe, hey, we should be better communicating or, you know, some of these things around um, DEI, um, things like that, I think, have been highlighting the need in general for us to start thinking about that maybe scientists can be good at more than one thing at the same time. Um, we can be good scientists and good communicators or good scientists and working on change in the field or various other things that, that keeping the field of the atmospheric science is healthy. is not just about publishing the next latest and greatest paper. When you think about how the field operates as a whole and who's coming in of it, who's not coming out of it, like all of those kinds of things to keep the scientific enterprise going in a healthy way. So I just see this as part of that. That's great. Okay, I've kept you a long time. Um, we could probably keep talking for a lot we longer. Could, but, I mean, did we cover it? Is there anything else I should have? We should have talked about. I should have asked you about that. I didn't. I think we pretty much covered everything. I mean, I really appreciate yeah. you taking the time. Yeah, thanks again so much for doing it, and um, and uh, you know, best of luck with the the program. You know, Thank Godspeed, you. and uh, looking forward to see how it goes what we can all learn from it. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. No, no. Thank you for doing it. My pleasure. <laughs> it's going to be a long drawn out effort to make change happen. And so this is not the time to rest. So says Deanna Hence, And it was such a pleasure and an honor to talk with her. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editors and post-producers are Stefan Wiener and Dana Hamm, and our audio engineer is Juan Aboitas. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.